0: your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 as we continue on in our series looking at this story of the beginning and of beginnings. So the beginning of the universe, the beginning of us, and today we're going to look at the beginning of marriage. Do not fear if you're a single person here, um, but if you just got engaged, you might want to pay attention. So um, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is one of those things where you come to a passage about marriage and you wonder if half your congregation thinks it's not for them. And here's what I would say. If you desire to be married, this is for you. If you are married, this is for you. If you are suffer from a broken marriage, this is for you. And here's where I know it's for you. If you are either male or female, it's for you. Anybody left out? I don't think so. In our culture, you never know. Um, and that's kind of the point of where we are today, right? Well, so often in life and in the way the world looks at uh, gender, marriage, sexuality, whatever it may be, however you want to term it, is the culture looks at what feels right, what, what they think, what fits for them, and doesn't come back to or start with the word of God To determine what God's design is. And so as we're looking at Genesis, what we're looking at is not just a story of how God did things. We are looking at the reality of why God did things. Why he created us in his image. Why he created us in his image, male and female. Why then he designed man and woman to go together. Why we are counterparts, complements of one another. In chapter one of Genesis, we see God revealed God revealed as Elohim, the majestic creator of all, the one who speaks and things happen, the initiator and designer of all creation. In chapters two through four, we see God in another way. We see God in a relational way as Yahweh Elohim, the relational covenant God, the one who will establish his covenant with his people and will keep his covenant with his people We see God working to create simply by speaking things into being, creating out of nothing. But when it comes to humanity, he takes special interest in this creation. We become the pinnacle of creation, those who would bear his image. And that term in his image is reserved for humanity. No other creature in all of creation, no matter how glorious, actually is. Demonstrates the image of God, we can see his glory in creation, but it's but a shadow. We as humanity bear the imprint of God. He claims over and over again in Genesis one that everything he made was good. And God, as the creator, becomes the sovereign and owner of everything he made. And so if God is the creator and God is the owner of everything and God is the one declaring that it is good, then it stands to reason that God is the only one who gets to speak into the purpose of the things he created. If you make for yourself, as Jeremiah would say, as the potter, you make a vessel who then gets to determine what that vessel is used for the maker of the vessel and if God is the creator of all things who then gets to decide what that creation is used for so we have to go back to God and what he says the Bible it has been said begins and ends with a marriage Adam and Eve and then this wedding feast that we will enjoy as the people of God when we as the bride meet our bridegroom jesus christ andreas kostenberger a new testament scholar says scripture teaches that family was god's idea and that marriage is a divine not merely a human institution what this means is that humans are not free to redefine marriage and family however they want we're not free to redefine what the roles of men and women are we go back to the word and the word says That we were all created in his image. Male and female. Making us equal. And yet he created us different. It's not hard to understand that. I sat down with a group of third graders. At Pocahontas Elementary School. Last year. Third graders. Get this. Because all I had to say was. Girls and boys are different right. And they went. Uh, yeah. I said, well, make sure your parents understand that. (laughs) Right? It's obvious we're different. Yet the question is, then with the third graders, I said, are boys or girls better? Boys, girls, boys, girls. No, it's not an issue of better. It's an issue of different. See, it's only our culture that defines different as unequal. The Bible never does so. The Bible doesn't equate sameness with equality. If that were the case, then we'd be equal with God. And we're not. No, the Bible says that we're different and yet we are equal. And so here in chapter two, we have a beautiful picture of God intimately weaving mankind together and interweaving man and women, men and women. So I want you to follow along if you would. Genesis chapter two, verse 18. This is what was happening on day six. God has said it is good over and over and over again. And so it would stand to reason that this should jump off the page at us in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From this passage, every teaching in Scripture from this point on, from this passage, every single passage of Scripture that has to do with marriage will glean its truth. Every single passage from this point on will come back to what happens in the garden when God created woman. It's a pretty incredible feat. But on top of that, it's so important because it defines the relationship between men and women for the rest of time. How God did this. So don't miss it. God's glory is on display here. God is putting himself on display by bringing man and woman together, by creating them male and female. He says, let us make man in our own image. And he created them in his image, male and female. And then he plants them in a garden. He puts them there with a purpose. But don't miss this, that God is the one at work. So I want you to see if we're going to go back to the word of God, we have to go back to looking at God. We have to see his design in creating man and woman. We have to see the display of his glory and his image that is in that design. And then we want to hear his declaration about man and woman and what the relationship is supposed to look like. So let's start with God's design. Tim Savage said the reason there's so much glory in marriage is because there's so much of God in marriage. Marriage is a pretty glorious thing. How many of you watched yesterday as the redheaded prince finally got married? Right. Now here's the thing. I watched. How many of you were four AM people and started watching? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um there's a cool thing called D V R, right? <laughs> you can like I watched. I was fascinated. And the reason I watched is because I've been the red headed guy with the beard that nobody seems to understand and is kind of the outcast of his family and finds the beautiful woman to marry that doesn't necessarily make sense to a lot of people. I've been that guy so I can totally relate. Right. I thought it was fascinating. It was beautiful. There were really poignant moments and you could tell they're in love, whatever that means. Right. And it was it was cute. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. All of those things. Why is it so glorious and why is it worth celebrating? Because marriage is designed by God. Marriage isn't worth celebrating and glorious because of love Marriage is worth celebrating and is glorious because of God. And so when we understand God's initiative in designing man and woman, we begin to understand the pull towards the beauty of marriage. So I'll ask you, how many of you ladies started planning your wedding when you were like 12? Any of you, those people, come on, admit it. Some of you were doing it, right? Some of you were doing it. You had dreams, How many of you dreamed about the man that you would marry and how he would sweep you away and it would be super romantic and the best thing ever? And now you're living your life. (laughs) How many of you men knew you were going to marry that supermodel and she was going to have seven kids and stay a supermodel? And I mean, this is the reality of life, right? So how do we get past that and keep the glory in marriage? First of all, we have to see God's design in making men and women. All of creation happened by God's initiative. You can look at Genesis 1 and 2 and see this. Genesis 1, he spoke. He's the one who did the work. Genesis 2, he formed, he created, he spoke, he did. He's initiating creation. This is his initiative. Therefore, he's the one who takes ownership of everything. But it's fascinating when we get to verse 18. That though he has declared everything good. He sees a deficiency. He says this is not good. (laughs) He doesn't say man is not good. Man was perfect. In fact, man probably had no idea he was missing anything, right? But God sees that man is. Adam needed a helper he needed a companion he needed a lover he needed someone who he could have a relationship with if God's glory was going to be on display it was going to be on display through his love through sacrifice through companionship God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity now God has a remedy for man's deficiency. So, guys, if you think that you are to lord over your wife, remember that you were the one that was deficient. You weren't enough. God determined a remedy, and that remedy was, as the scripture says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, ladies, I know that whole idea of helper brings up those words like servant and obey. Scripture seems to love, but I want to make sure you understand this term for helper is not a woman that was made for a man in order to serve a man. No, Scripture is pretty clear in Ephesians that wives should submit to their husbands, not women should always be submitting to men. While we're given specific roles, we're talking specifically about marriage today. And today we want to understand that what God determined was there was a deficiency, so he determined a remedy, and that remedy was a helper, not a servant. In fact, the same word used for helper here is also used in Scripture for God's relationship to his people. So I don't think we're talking about a servant here. In fact, you fast forward to the New Testament, and the New Testament says, Jesus said, I've got to go away so that the helper can come so there's glory in this helper that is being made now don't get me wrong when god established man and woman he established us as different but equal different in roles different in desires different in position in life different things that we do different ways we obey but he made us equal And the way we see that is in the next phrase, a helper fit for him. What that phrase really means is I'm going to make an opposite. A compliment with an E. You know what I'm talking about? It's not just what you're supposed to do to your wife, compliment her. It's that she is your compliment with an E. She's the opposite of you, the one who's supposed to fulfill you've seen Jerry Maguire, I'm not saying go watch it, but you have seen Jeremy You complete me. At the end of that movie, you am dating myself at this point. That's great. Right. You complete me. It's ridiculous. But there's a sense in which there's truth there. Okay? And the truth is that you actually are opposites meant to come together. Have you noticed how the longer you are married, the more alike you become? My wife likes to say I was really nice until I met you. I know that comes a shock to all of you because you think she's really nice. We've become more and more alike, and yet we're still very different. And we will always be different because I'm a man and she's a woman. And we should be different. We, we have different roles in the home. We have different roles in our lives. We have different roles in the way we love each other. We're opposites. We're fit for one another. And so God identified this deficiency. He determined a remedy, but then he showed Adam his need. Look back at the passage. It's pretty fascinating. So I'm going to make a helper fit for him. So God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So he puts Adam on a quest to find a helper. But God so intimately knows that none of these animals would ever be a fit helper he puts him on the quest so that Adam will actually know his need. So here's what I believe is happening here. Adam was completely content. He's a single dude in a garden with a bunch of animals. He was not going, I sure wish I had somebody to talk to me. Sure wish somebody would every time I come home from tending the garden would ask me how I'm feeling. It's not happening. He's not sitting there wanting something. He has a perfect relationship with God. He's not lacking. He's not lonely. He doesn't just have a dog. He has a lion. And no man with a lion is ever lonely, right? He's happy. And yet God determined the deficiency and then points out the need to Adam. He puts him on a quest to find a helper. And there's no helper for him. So God executes his plan. He intimately executed a plan to form a helper for Adam. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. Now, just as an aside, if you ever heard that urban myth that men have one less rib than women because of this, it's a lie. It's not true. Medically, just not true. Just wanted to clarify that. But what we have here is God intimately interweaving men and women made in the image of God. And because man is made in God's image, so is woman. And he doesn't just take, you know, any bone. He takes something close to the heart. He takes something from the side. There's equality here, and God is intimately interweaving their lives. By executing this plan. And then God does this. This is the best part of the story. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. God demonstrates his love for Adam and Eve. By giving Eve as a gift. And Adam's response is, yeah, I deserve that. And what's his response? This at last. He breaks into poetry. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's looked at all the animals, hasn't found that. He sees Eve and he goes, all right. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's response is thanksgiving. He extols the virtue of God as the creator, but he also extols the virtue of Eve. I want to make this clear because I want to ask a point of application for us today. For those who are married, when was the last time you looked at your spouse as one created in the image of God? Worthy of praising God for. That you looked at your spouse and you didn't see the deficiencies, but you saw your own deficiency. That you looked at your spouse and you said, this is what God's glory must look like. Worthy of praise. See, what's happening here is because Adam has a perfect relationship with God and his whole life, his whole existence is about putting God's glory on display. His whole purpose for life is God's glory that when he meets his spouse, he can see nothing but glory. That's God's design for marriage. That's God's design for men and women. That's God's design for bringing us together. While our culture says life is all about fulfilling your own desires, the Bible says life is all about fulfilling God's desires for you. And that's putting his glory on display. Tim Savage says marriages are on firmest ground when partners are most focused on the glory of the Lord. I deal with this all the time when it comes to premarital counseling. I do a lot of premarital counseling and I do a lot of marriage counseling as well. And I ask some of the same questions And the first question in the first session. One of the first questions I ask a young couple is I say, what does your marriage look like if it's successful in 50 years? And you know what? Most of the time their answers are, oh, we haven't thought that far. Because they're only thinking about the wedding. They're preparing for a wedding, not a marriage. And so what happens so often in our marriages is we're so focused on each other and so focused on our needs being fulfilled in that other person, whether it's romantically, emotionally, physically, spiritually, that we miss and lose sight of the fact that your marriage, your life together, is meant to be for something greater than the two of you. So what do you think happens when marriage, when the wedding becomes the focus? You get to the wedding and then you got to figure out what you're living for from there, right? What's going to happen for the next 50 years? What's the purpose from now on? Is it our kids? Is it prosperity? Is it our careers? Is it what is it? What if from the beginning, from the beginning of life, so if you're in this room and you are a preteen or teenager and you're saying, I'm not married, don't know if I ever am, it looks really hard, then I want you to hear this. What if the goal of your life was set larger than just another person? What if it was the glory of God? What if God and his purposes and his glory, putting his image on display, became the focus of your life and therefore became the focus of your marriage? You see, God is putting his glory on display by creating man and woman, by creating them different. He's putting his image on display by creating male and female. He's showing that there's unity and diversity, that those who are complements of one another actually make stronger bonds. You ever heard that opposites attract? Who created that? God. It wasn't just that a scientist came up. With that, God has been doing that from the beginning. He shows what love looks like in this community in encouraging one another, loving one another, sacrificing for one another. God displayed his image by creating man and woman for different roles. He creates one as a head and one as a helper. He creates one as a cultivator. He creates the other as a complement. In other words... Adam can't do his job without Eve and Eve can't do her job without Adam. It's not compare your jobs. It's I need you to be able to do my job. So husbands and wives in the room. If your tendency is to look at your wife and go, if she would just, then I could. You know, there might be some truth to that. But my guess is if you would just, then she could. And vice versa. You see, when you see your spouse come to you, your first response should be there was a deficiency in me. Oh, how glorious God is for providing her. That's what's happening here. God is putting his image on display and creating male and female for something greater than self. For a relationship with God and for a relationship that focuses on the other. Isn't this what love is supposed to look like? That love is patient and kind? That love is about others, not self? The greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his own good or for his friend? For others, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us and that while we were still his enemies, Christ gave himself for us. Self-sacrificial love for the other, you see Yahweh Elohim, the covenant relational God puts his glory on display in creation and in the unity of man and woman in marriage. Your marriage, my marriage is supposed to say something about God. And if you're here today and you one day want to be married. Today, your life needs to be about God. So. To the single people here from teenagers up, you ready? I want you to hear me for just a second. If you're saying this is all about my parents and if they would get that right, it would be really nice. I want you to hear me. Your job now is to prepare to be a good husband. Prepare to be a good wife. To put God at the center, to glorify him in all things. You will be prepared to be the husband or wife you're meant to be. I want to encourage you to run hard after him to make his glory the focal point of your life. Be an example to your parents if that's a struggle for them. And those who are married, I want you to hear me that God's glory as the focal point of your marriage takes care of a lot of things. Tim Savage said God's glory in God's glory. We have something so powerful that it transcends the most difficult challenges of life. It's a provision so dependable that it can lift marriages to awe-inspiring heights. It's a beacon so intense that it can show the way out of the darkest crisis. It's a vision so permanent that it can outlast every temporary obstacle. It's something supernatural, something beyond what mere humans bring to a partnership. It's the cement of marriage, the rope that binds. When husbands and wives unite for the glory of God, then they unite indeed. And that flies against our culture where it's all about sameness. It's all about us. But when you make God's glory the focal point of your marriage, you have the ability to look past and overcome differences. Differences don't divide you. You can celebrate the differences. I love the fact that my wife is different than me. A, it makes life really interesting, right? Right? B, I wouldn't want to be like me most of the time, right? So why would I love someone like me? I'm thankful that God made her very different than me. Makes all of life more fun. Putting God's glory as the center and the focal point of your marriage allows you to look past decreasing attraction. Anybody want to speak to that one or should we just go past it real quick? Yeah, yeah. I'll just put it this way. When I got married, it was 155 pounds. I'm not anymore. Right? But I won't tell you how much my wife weighed when we got married. She's the most beautiful person on the planet. Um, But what I will tell you is this. If you have in your mind an idea and an ideal, and it doesn't start with God and his glory, you will always be disappointed. I want to encourage you to look to Jesus because he is glorious and he has made your spouse glorious in his image. If you make God's glory the focal point of your marriage, you can resist the division that comes from self-fulfillment because it will be about her. It will be about him, not you. See, when we live our lives for God's glory and for others, we can best put God's glory on display and best fight the destruction of sin that really most of the time is self-induced. We're the ones guilty. We're the ones who are doing it to ourselves. It's not our spouse who's to blame. It's us. And if we'll put them first, put God's glory first. So I ask you today in application. What's your marriage for? Is it for God's glory? Is it for your kids? Is it for your jobs? Is it for prosperity? Is it for companionship? Is it for fun? All those things aren't bad. But they're fleeting. And God's glory is forever. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Extol the beauty of what God has done. In making us male and female. Finally the passage ends with this. A declaration from God. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Let me make one cultural clarification here. In our day and age leave means you leave home. And you go build your own home. And you go live in your own home. I just want to make it clear that at no point in the rest of scripture. Was that ever the case. Now, I'm not arguing for us all living in huge compounds of families, even though some do. Right. What I want to make clear is, did Abraham's boys leave? Isaac, Jacob. So, so let's not put cultural realities onto scripture and make that what leaving means, because honestly, you could live in the same house as your parents and leave your parents authority and go into your own home and love your wife. As Christ loved the church? Sometimes it's easier if you're not living on the same roof. And most of the time it's better if you're not living under the same roof. Because you can also look back at each of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. And see all the problems that came from all their kids sticking around. Right. But I will say this. Leaving and cleaving is what God has designed us for. And that's supposed to lead to a profound and lasting Effect that we are bound together in God's image internally, externally, bound together as man and woman, and to become one flesh. This is a profound and lasting reality. How does that happen? It doesn't happen if we're ashamed. It happens when we have a perfect relationship with God that it leads to a perfect relationship with our husband and wife. So we're all. Too bad. No perfection here. But what we do have is the ability now to obey. The ability to love sacrificially. The ability and the design of God and through Jesus to be self-sacrificing in love and self-emptying in service. And so that's where I want to close today. I want to close with Ephesians chapter 5. So if you would flip over there real quick. Ephesians chapter 5 ends... With, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But it begins this section, verse 22, with, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Take your role seriously. It doesn't say submit to men, it says submit to your husbands. All of us are called to submit to authority. So take the role seriously. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. If you can see the glory of Jesus in your husband, he should be easy to submit to. So husbands, that gives us something. Can she see the glory of Christ in you? Husbands, you want to show the glory of Christ? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I'll ask you again. What's the purpose of the love in your marriage? Is it self-fulfilling or is it self-sacrificing? Is it laying down your life for the good of your spouse? Or is it wishing she would lay down her good for your good? There's something going on in this passage, and it's a mystery. It actually says it's a mystery because it's referring to Christ and the church. But I want to I dive into this mystery because I want to make sure you understand this. Tim Keller put it this way. Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. So if you're here today and you are in love about to get married, if you've been married for 50 years or if you're a teenager who one day wants to be in love or maybe you think you're in love. Here's what falling in love means. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating them to be. And to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when you get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of, glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word and the gospel. And then each spouse should give himself or herself to be a vehicle for that work. And to envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Can you look at your spouse today and say, my greatest desire is that you would be presented to God, holy and blameless. And I trust that Jesus will do that work because he is able. I want to be a part of that. Can that be the commitment we make to one another? I want to be a part of Jesus's work in your life to make you more like Jesus. That's a commitment worth standing up for, because it's one thing for us to say we believe in biblical marriage. It's another thing for us to have biblical marriages. In a biblical marriage, a husband will lay down his life for his wife. Meaning her good is first and a wife will submit to her husband, meaning his good is first. Is your marriage and your life about the other? Because that's what becoming like Jesus looks like. I want to give us an opportunity to respond. To understand that our marriages are not the ultimate good, but instead just a picture of the ultimate good, our relationship to Jesus. Jesus. To realize that you have a purpose in being married. When Joanne and I got engaged, I told her that I promised to love who she was and who she was going to become, who God was making her to be. And I was most excited about the second. Barely knew her, so I couldn't be too excited about the first, but I was really excited about what was coming. So I wonder, would it be possible for us today, if you're a single person, maybe you're here with a parent and you would just turn to your parents and say, look, I I need help. I want to become the man or woman that will be able to have a marriage where God is the focus and his glory is the focus. Will you help me? Maybe you're here by yourself and you're a single person. Maybe your spouse is with the Lord and you just want to rejoice in the fact that now they are exactly who they were made to be. Maybe you're here and you're married and you just realize no matter how good your marriage is, it could be better. And the way to make it better isn't that you get what you want, but that you lay down yourself for your spouse, that they might become more like Christ. So I want to give you a few moments to pray. Pray. Pray with each other, to talk to each other, to respond to each other before the Lord. So, if you need to pray together, come on up. The front is open. If you just want to kneel where you are, you just want to pray where you are, but don't waste this time. don't Don't think of it as, oh, this is just the chance to get to lunch. Brad would finish this up. Now, this is the time where we respond to God's word. So, when was the last time? You looked at your spouse, your children, your mom, your dad, or another person and said, See the glory of God on display. How amazing are his works. And to understand that he or she was made for God's glory and for you. That you might come to glorify God. So would you look at your spouses, with your family members, with your friends, with the people around you, and just commit to one another, to being who God has designed you to be, for each other. At the end of this time, in just a few moments, we're going to close, and we're going to go, and we're going to try to live this out. But don't walk away without making a commitment to the Lord or to the people next to you. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer.